Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Welcome, 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 all curious people. My name is Joel. I am the host of The Ramble, and today I have a very, very, very special guest who I can now call a friend, uh, although we've never met in person, (laughs) but uh, he is truly one of the most fascinating and intelligent, thoughtful human beings you will soon come to find out as we chat here. His name's Jamin. And he's the founder of The Insecurity Project, and he specializes in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and business owners eradicate insecurity so they can show up in life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs. He is widely recognized as one of Australia's best life coaches and a leading voice globally on the subject of personal insecurity, something I have much experience with. Jim is the author of Unhindered, The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity, which I have read, and it is fantastic, and it has elegantly simple solutions to complex people problems, as well as The One-Minute Coach, which includes 365 thought-provoking insights to start your day based on the popular One-Minute Coach radio segment heard by over 750,000 listeners daily that you host. Jim's life work is represented in his groundbreaking model around the process for eradicating insecurity from your life. His conviction is that not only is insecurity a solvable problem, it is our most important adult work to free ourselves from the limiting beliefs of our childhood. He's a dynamic speaker who skillfully blends a lifetime of experience in leadership and coaching with his passion for human behavioral science and peak performance. His pragmatic and direct approach to vulnerable subjects about mental health and well-being are a breath of fresh air and provide rare cut-through-the-noise conversations, of which I can agree with and we will get into. With over 15,000 coaching hours, which is a lot under his belt, he's able to draw from a deep and rich source of lived experience, helping ambitious people improve the quality of their life in the areas that matter most. Welcome, sir. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, Joel, and it's uh, it's such a treat to see you again after the birth of your latest child. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and great to be on the show. So thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Like. It has been, we, we've been trying to connect for months now, I think. I think like, you know, we were, I was on your podcast and we just decided we were going to make a point to connect and we had a good year. We had a solid first COVID year and then things got a little squirrely. What were you up to, man? <laughs> were we? <able> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, you're right. We, we formed a really deep connection very early and such a rare thing. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a challenge to connect at different time zones, another side of the world. But um, I love the connection with people where it's like it doesn't really matter how often you connect. The moment you talk again, you pick up wherever you left off. Often there's that deep seated connection and openness. So uh, it's always a treat talking to you. You too, brother. And and I have so much that I want to ask you about today because you know, listen, we've we've all lived life is not so easy 
And childhood is not so easy as, as you indicate. And throughout all the challenges that I've ever had, few people that I've come across are able to distill information, complex problems that we feel emotionally, practically into just simple, digestible, usable, effective sound bites, um, written, written blurbs like you. And it's a gift. But before we get into that, I just, I want to start with how you came. I've got unhindered here. I've got one minute coach here. So proof that I bought him, as you know. And, uh, but how did, what was the journey that led you into this coaching, this coaching platform and realizing that, you know, maybe this was a place that you could affect some positive change on the world? Um, you know, it probably starts with being given the, the leadership of the church that I grew up in when I was 23. Uh, I, I was always, a, you know, a, a good kid, a responsible kid. I was the firstborn. I was school captain of my primary school, school captain of my high school, but a pretty straighty 180 kind of kid. Not, not in a lot of natural confidence, but I suppose because I was a responsible kid and did the right thing, you know, leadership was naturally given to me. But I, I was, I was going to join the Army. I was going to do mechanical engineering in the Army. And I got I got done for drugs on my final interview before being signed up to join the army, and uh, never even touched drugs at the time. And had gone to a mate's eighteenth birthday party just after school, and got there late. And uh, naively, he'd give me a plate of hash cookies because I was hungry, and I just hoed into them, having no idea what no. they were. And I had my final army test a week later, and and. You know, marijuana showed up in my blood and urine samples and instantly disqualified. So it, it was, killed it was hilarious. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but did you get high? Well, I was it was hard to say because I was high on life. Like I just <laughs> finished school. It was a great time of life. So I didn't I didn't notice. I didn't you're, notice anything different. You're like the yogis, right? The um my brother <laughs> used to tell me the story about how these these yogis in India, they would they would give them like just a handful of some sort of a psychedelic drug and and they would feel no effect because <laughs> to your point, they, they were high on life and they had control over their body. So maybe you just proved that story true. Maybe I did. <laughs> but a, a massive slide in those moment, right? Because here I am, I'm sure I'm going one direction and then that path gets blocked. And three weeks later, I, I met my now wife, which I, I wouldn't have met her. We've been married 23 years this year. Uh, and I went to a, a youth camp, a Christian youth camp. And I, at the time, the language that I have for it was I felt like a real sense of um, calling and destiny and purpose and, and interaction with God that, that set me on fire. I, I came home so energized, so alive, so clear that all I wanted to do was uh, be useful to people in helping them find meaning and purpose in their life. In And in a religious setting, I, I felt like the way of Jesus made the most sense to me and was my own personal experience of, of that. And so I went to Bible college instead, uh, got given the, the role as the youth pastor in my church a year later. Uh, and then a few years later after that, when our senior minister went on long service leave and then eventually didn't come back, I was given the leadership of the church that I'd grown up in at 23 um, and also oversight of the Christian school and daycare centre that the church was running at the time. Uh, 
which I found out six weeks later was trading insolvently. So it was kind of a baptism of fire, <laughs> not only leadership but business and uh, at a very young age. What was, um, what was the weight of carrying uh, a parish, is it? In, in or, or yeah, con- congregation. congregation, yeah, yeah, at such a young age, like, did you feel that? I, I did because when when the oversight of our denomination decided that I was the suitable person to take on the church, I, I probably you know set my sights on leading a church one day, but did not think I was ready by any stretch of the imagination. Thought there is no way anyone else thinks is a good idea. Who gives a twenty three year old oversight? What does a 23-year-old know about anything? Um, <laughs> I didn't. So, I, so, so I'm thinking they're going to announce it at the church and everyone's going to go, oh, okay, cool. We'll see you later. Yeah. Um, that but, church across the street looks really nice. Well, <laughs> exactly right. Um, but, but to my surprise uh, and, and shock, they, they all said, great, yeah, of course. Uh, and they trusted me to lead them. And so... The weight of that responsibility was significant, but I also felt a strong sense of calling, and so it felt bigger than me as well. It felt like, okay, well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, so then I have a resource that I can draw from that's outside of me to help me do this. And so every time I open my mouth to speak, I I feel like I want to make sure that I'm bringing something that's not just from me but is is a resource from heaven, is somehow uh, about a spirituality and a wisdom that's been given to me to give to others. So I think that really helped me carry that weight, the fact that I didn't feel like I was on my own. I felt like I was called by God to do a job for a certain group of people mm-hmm. for a certain season and and that I was, I was bound by that, that I had to do what was in my heart to do. I found out that the church was trading insolvently because, sorry, the Christian school and the daycare center was insolvent because the manager at the time, he also went on long service leave mm-hmm. and I got given the reins while he went away uh, and had had no business training but could tell the difference between black and red on a balance sheet. <laughs> and and I talked to the board about this and they were shocked uh, and didn't really, I don't know how they weren't across it either. And I said, surely the manager doesn't have a role when he gets back. And they're like, well, just sit on this, you know, don't do anything rash. We'll talk it all through. I'm sure we'll find a way. Anyway, he came home, jet lagged, came into his office, which I was occupying because he, you know, left something in there straight from the airport into the office. And uh, and he said, oh, how, how was it while I was away, Jamin? And I said, it, it was very interesting. And he says, interesting. What do you mean by that? 20 minutes later, I'd fired him. And, and, and I still remember vividly that experience because uh, he's 55, I'm 23, and I remember he took out a blank piece of paper and a pen and, and he drew me on one side and him on the other side and he wrote, you, you're 23, me, I'm 55. Who are you again? No. And, and how are you doing? How are you? firing me how is this actually happening and he just just the the crude drawings on a page it weren't actually anything but just as a way of um trying to leverage power back but i just was bound by this conviction that all i know is this is not right and you can't do this for any longer not on my watch that's enough authority Uh, whether i have any legal authority to fire you or not i don't really care i have a moral obligation to this organization to stop the rot you had every opportunity to stop this prior and you didn't um so it ends here and 
Um, and then I burst into tears. <laughs> and so, ah, I was going to ask, not while he was in the room, right? As soon as he kind of eggs the stage left. left, you just. Of course. I was like, oh my goodness, this is intense. What am I doing? You know, and. Those moments and, and are so beautiful, right? When, you're, when your composure holds just long enough. Just long enough. <laughs> to get the job done, right? You know, <laughs> it's like, and then, oh no, it all comes flushing out of you. That's crazy story. That's a crazy mm. story. Did you, you know, how did you, how did you collect yourself after that? When you, you know, after the crying, you're like, okay, I'm. Yeah. I'm well, then I, man. then I, then I went and talked to the board and told them what I'd done, and they were all very disappointed. They they said we ex- expressed our concern. We we didn't agree to this. So then I lost three board members as well. When I put my head on the pillow at night, I slept with peace because, like, well. All I can do is what is right. When you don't know what to do, do what's right. Mm-hmm. And and that was the right thing to do. So, okay, I, I'll wear that. And I, I didn't see any other option. Did so, your parents teach you that value? Like where did you learn that value? Uh, I think, yeah, I, I think they're, they're very authentic people and have a lot of integrity. And I think never once did I see them make a decision that violated their own sense of what was right, even when it cost them personally. So I think, yeah, I'm sure they modeled that to me. And I think just people that inspired me, I noticed that about them. I noticed that they they were heart, they led with their heart. They had a very sensitive bullshit meter and and they weren't willing to pretend or avoid the hard stuff just because it was hard. Well, then your point about the piece, the piece of it is very true. When we, even as little kids, when my daughter does something she's, she knows is not right to her sister and then she lies about it, you know, or half, half truths about it, she carries it. We carry it. And, and there is a, even if the result, you know, you can trust the result to say, I'm going to make this decision, not knowing what the consequence was. You lost three board members, who knows what else you could have lost your position at the church. Yeah. So, you know, and we never know how many bricks are laid out in front of us in our path, but but being able to say I did the right thing is, I think, one of the most powerful things that we can cultivate as a human being and hardest thing to cultivate mm. as a human being, because you can't be, to your point, insecure about it. And I, and I, I just want to digress for a second and, and kind of go back to this unique relationship you had where you trusted in God. And, you know, immediately I, get, I, I started to think about Abraham Hicks, who... I'm sure you're familiar with some of her work. No. Okay. So she's, she is this uh, self-help guru who channels Abraham at, while she's speaking and she helps people. She has a massive, massive following. She's been doing it for many, 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 many years, 30, 40 years. I don't know. And so when she's on stage, she's not Esther Hicks. She's Abraham. She's the voice of Abraham. Now I'm not suggesting that that's what you when you say you feel called, uh, you could feel God is happening to you. But the ability to to have that trust and connection is not one that everybody has. So where did that, like, where did you start to guess f- feel that or trust in this 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 uh, this? There's this thing that you can't see or touch, but you know that it's coming through you. Where did that come from? Well, I think the first of my experience that profoundly was at that camp. I'd, I'd always liked the Christian worldview. It made sense to me. My parents modeled it in a really practical way. They were wholehearted about it. But my faith was fairly nominal up until 
I was finished year 12, that camp was an opportunity to surrender to something, to actually go, am I in or not? Like I can dance around the edge of this. Are I actually going to surrender uh, and open myself to God or will I keep God in a safe box where he's useful? And so I think that was a really pivotal moment and and the resulting experience was so profound and real for me and rich that I felt ruined for anything less than that. It was wholehearted or nothing from that moment. So, you know, I remember thinking about the opportunity to preach every week, uh, you know, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour with a microphone having 150 sometimes people listening to you. And just the responsibility of that. And I remember after week three going, okay, I've, I've just spoken about everything I know. This is going to be a long rest of my life. This is my role. But, God, you've called me to this, so I'm, I'm in a position of responsibility. I'm going to, I'm not going to speak anything unless I feel like I've got something that you've given me to speak. Uh, I'm not going to just add to the noise and, and just play a role I'm going to be wholehearted about this. If I can't be wholehearted about this, I'm not in. I won't ever get up there and just do something half-assed. I won't do it, even if I'm staying up till, you know, all hours, even if I've got nothing for five minutes before I get up. I will not get up unless I've got something to say. And and so I, to answer your question, how did that happen, I don't really know. But I, I think it was something that I noticed that it was, it was very appealing to me about being what happens when you're wholehearted and and I tasted something very real that ruined me for half-heartedness from that moment on mm. and it kind of stuck with me in everything that I did. You know, to, you know as the curse as well, I, I was a very passionate and a, and a 23-year-old who's wholehearted, they're, they're a bit dangerous because they think they know everything as well. So. <laughs> They think they're always right. That they think God is always speaking to them, and they they're wholehearted about something. They can see no other option. So, um, the guy who gave you the hash brownies was wholehearted when he he said, "Here, <laughs> that's some exactly. like it's just it's so cool." I know, I know, I'm kind of obsessing over it, but I just find it so fascinating how much you had to process in such a short period of time, and I want to. I want to talk, just use that as a bit of a sidestep to the, to the public speaking, because you're a fantastic public speaker. You, you, you bring the charisma and the authenticity that so many speakers want to bring. And I kind of conjure up this idea of 10,000 hours from Malcolm Gladwell's book, where, mm. you know, the Beatles are playing all over Europe, just, you know, and you're, and you're out there every week preaching for 45 minutes. And so can you almost from a practical standpoint, talk about like how you were able to, to speak and how much of it was preparation papers in front of you, how much of it was just allowing it to come through you and just speaking off your, through your heart and, and you know, what came to mind. Because I felt that position was so sacred. I never freestyled it. Right. Uh, I thought that was inappropriate at, at my age and my level of experience <laughs> just to go, do you know what? I'm just going to let the spirit of God work through me as, <laughs> as I watch. I, I remember um, one of my uh, these, these funny moments that 
that stick with you and are informative. I remember being in church as probably a 17 or 18-year-old and a guest preacher came and and he said, everyone open your Bibles. The, the text I'm going to preach from today is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And the, the, the verse says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he, and he read the verse and he says, now no, there's now no condemnation. Now no. What do you now know? I was like... That, hang on, you've, you've taken two words, you've spelt one of them differently, you've taken them out of the context and you're <laughs> off for the next hour talking about what do you now know? <laughs> Complete, I'm like, Complete I'm not sure that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> I, I'm not, I think that's, it's supposed to actually have a bit more substance and, and rigor than that. And so uh, I thought I'm not going to do that when I get up there, that I wouldn't dare. So, so there was always plenty of preparation. There was always plenty of thought around it, uh, but I never read. I, I never, you know, was was that cruel to people's ears too to be to be so safe. So it was a, a, a mixture of you know, here's here's my research, here's what I'm thinking, but I'm going to treat you like humans as well, and and try and be as present and and interactive as possible as well. And I think I was always mindful of the fact that the goal of this experience is not teaching it's learning so how can i facilitate learning that that means there's going to have to be some space for some questions Mm -hmm. Uh, there's going to have to be space for people to disagree you know so um rather than you just listen to someone bang on for 45 minutes about whatever they're talking so obviously i didn't do that very skillfully but i i knew what i wanted to achieve and i had some clear rules that I set for myself that I was able to play within. And so, yeah, I suppose the 10,000 hours of doing that, mm-hmm. um, sometimes twice a week, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, and then developing. I, I also took on a role as a school chaplain at the local high school in, you know, later in that experience. And they called me Chapo and I had the opportunity, opportunity to do Chapo's Thought of the Week, which was a two-minute, had to be short, sharp, funny, meaningful, memorable, engaging if it was anything less than that, you'd be mauled. But the same rules. Don't add to the noise. Mm-hmm. Don't just get up and say something that you haven't thought about. And feeling, again, I, I'm, I, I'm a vessel here. I have an opportunity and it's a sacred opportunity. So, But condensing into two minutes yeah. and with a group of people who haven't, necess- they're not, they haven't necessarily given their permission for you to speak. Mm-hmm. The school said I can speak. So uh, that was some of the, the scariest and highest stakes public speaking I ever did but refine my skills dramatically very quickly um, by being in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to get to that because, you know, we can go there right now. You know, it, there's such an art form in synthesizing, distilling information and speaking with clarity. And you do it in the one minute coach where, you know, you take these 365 ideas and you just make them so simple to understand. And even in Unhindered, it's an incredibly easy book to digest for you know, the subject matter that we're dealing with. But it's not, it's, it's, it's so simple when you read it on the page, but to get there, the work to be able to do that, like what, if we're jumping way ahead in your life, because we're going to come back <laughs> um, as we are, but you kind of open the door is like, how do you, this skill of, of just being able to, to bring these points with such clarity on the page and in speaking about them. How did you do that? Like, how did you, was it, was it just this process that you mentioned with the school or did it, it come later over the years? Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Chapo's thought of the week 
actually did evolve into the one minute coach because I had two years of weekly assemblies to, to, to do that every, mm-hmm. every week. And when I left the school to start my coaching business, I thought I learned a lot about that. I wonder where that skill is transferable to. I wonder if I could do that on radio. You know, I'd, I'd seen some precedents around sound bites, 60 seconds about a, you know, mortgage broking or 60 seconds on your money or different things on radio. I thought, I wonder if I could do a personal development segment around that. And uh, the local radio station said I could, but made me pay for that time, um, a real premium. And so I, I lasted two months. I paid up whatever it cost me, three or $5,000 to do that for it for that amount of time and proved that I could and then went to another radio station and said, see, I'm already doing it here. And they're like, oh, you're doing it here. Well, sure. We'd love to have that. And that would be valuable to our listeners. So you wouldn't need to pay for that time. We wouldn't be paying you. Um, And so then just open one door after the next. And then I had an open door to provide those sound bites and, then I had to create content, which was alarming because I created 30 segments and they probably took me two months to create. And no sooner had I had them done and the station's like, great, um, so can you give us the next 50 or 100 so we can pre-record them? Oh, God. <laughs> no idea what's involved in creating 50 or 100 segments. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. A complete idea, an original idea, an idea that makes sense, just mm-hmm. 60 seconds. Every word is precise. Every word counts. Uh, so it it was just brutal and you know but the the hard work around playing in those same rules do not add to the noise don't mm-hmm. you dare mm-hmm. put something generic on that page mm-hmm. <laughs> like do not dare say something that, that you haven't lived out of that's not that's an idea that you haven't benefited from so smoke what you're selling if you haven't road tested this idea and you don't know that it works don't you dare say anything about it mm. so again that adds to the time because you're like cool well I've only worked on these ideas so if I want to talk about it I better get plying mm-hmm. so, um, so I think you're yeah, playing in those rules and taking that opportunity seriously and then over five years, eventually compiling 365, which I got stuck halfway. I'm like, I'm done. I have nothing more I could possibly <laughs> say about anything that anyone would care about. And I had both my wife uh, and a business mentor saying, obviously, you have to get to 365. That's where this ends, Jamin. Obviously, this becomes a book, Jamin. Why haven't you finished yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so horrible that you're saying that to me. I'm done. I got nothing else to say. But they were just, come on, keep it going. Mm-hmm. You, you, this is good stuff. And so back to the drawing board, back to the, you know, you start with a raw idea and then chisel away at it until you got something mm-hmm. to say. And anyway, so that, yeah, I, I think that's how I eventually compiled all that over the years. But it, it definitely started with the rules I created for myself around what happens when I get the opportunity to speak when I was 23. There's there's this, this really refreshing theme with you and your life and your work that reminds me of looking at the masters in the world, the gyro dreams of sushis. How can I perfect the perfect piece of sushi over time? Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, which is just a fantastic book on creating art and and time being such a factor, especially in this world of like pseudo-intellectuals 
you know, where I probably fall into that category somewhere, pseudo coaches, you know, every time I click on a YouTube video, it's got a coaching ad from someone who hasn't put in the time. Mm. And that's not to criticize everybody. But when you have all of this accessible, we forget that good work takes time. Mm. And in your story, Stephen Pressfield was, was sharing a similar story when he worked at an ad agency and he'd bring in, a co- he'd bring in copy to his boss and it'd be refine it. Get out of the fluff, refine it, refine it. Just you know, ten years of that before he got to a place where he could write a best-selling book. You know, he was a late bloomer, and and you're just your commitment to it is so is so refreshing. And and I want to you know sink back into the previous part of your story. Then where so at what point did you decide to leave the church and pursue this this coaching, and why? And if and if you still believe that the framework of the church is a useful one, an important one, an absolutely necessary one for, you know, youth, adults, you know, the, the world as a whole. Mm. So, so one of the privileges of being a pastor was I was constantly invited into people's world to have conversations about the things that mattered. People would seek guidance. They would seek counsel. They would share vulnerabilities. And, and the thing that I found puzzling about those conversations is that they would often yield no fruit and no change would happen as a result of that. And what I observed over the years was the tendency of Christians to outsource the change work to God. And there was so much emphasis placed on a childlike faith, trust and obey, depend upon God, cast all your cares upon God, let God, you know, give your life to God and he will take care of you, which I think is a, is a beautiful way to start the faith journey because um, it it does require you to enter like a child. Um, and as a child, you are dependent upon others to take care of you, but you grow up, you become mature and maturity is about self-sufficiency and working out some things on your own. So it didn't seem like there was much provision for maturity, even though, as I understood, Paul, one of the church fathers, he said his mission was to grow people into maturity. That didn't seem like the practice. And so I was always puzzled. Why don't people actually change? Why do their marriages not improve? Why do their finances stay stagnant? Why don't they ever deal with their dysfunction? They, they pray a lot. They read their Bibles a lot. They come to church every week, but they don't change. So I tried addressing this in, in a few different ways. I, I, I canned the church for three months and kicked everyone out just because I couldn't see it was working. I thought this is a strange thing we do. We tick a box. I'm a Christian because I go to a Christian meeting once a week, but it doesn't seem to hit the ground anywhere. So what if I was to shut the door and force you to go have a look in the mirror and consider, are you actually following the way of Jesus or is this just something that you do? And, you know, most people thought I was the antichrist when I did that. And uh, you're good at making tough calls, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're good at making tough calls. You know, that was probably 15 years ago. There are still some people in my hometown that would cross to the other side of the street uh, because of that decision. But anyway, they're I was not practicing forgiveness, I guess. Uh, of course. So, yeah. so well. <laughs> but to me, I'm like, I feel like this is a loving decision. And even if they don't see it as loving now, one day they will see that this was loving. And my intention was wholehearted to lead people into more responsibility, more maturity, more dependence to have them, have them grow up. Anyway, only 30 of the 120 or so people came back. And that began a two-year period where there was much more flexibility to play and explore. And it was like, if we could start again, is this really what we do? Would we actually have someone preach at us for 45 minutes? Would we actually sing six songs? Would we actually 
give this money every week to do these things or we actually have a building? Like what would we do differently? So it was a lovely time, uh, but in the process I bit the hand that fed me. And, and so I'm like 30 people, they, they don't need a full-time pastor. They can't pay me a salary to do that. So my first outside work was the school chaplaincy and, and I got that role of government in Australia, made provision for funding for school chaplains, which was a strange decision in many people's eyes, um, but a wonderful gift uh, for me. And, and that two years was, was glorious. Uh, but and it kind of ex- explored my hori- expanded my horizons a little bit outside of the institutional church. Uh, but the real, the real, key moment was uh, the the mentor who placed me in the role in the first place when I was 23. He'd been like an older brother to me and, and mentored me in that role um, and very close. And I asked him to, to run a, a spiritual retreat for our church. And and I knew over our, over our conversations, he'd always introduced me to interesting concepts. And I said, could you bring some personal development content as well? Because I think this belongs and I'd like to introduce it to this community. And so he brought some coaching frameworks that I'd never heard of before into that. And I, I was, it floored me. I just thought this is a missing technology. I don't understand where these things have been. Surely they belong. Surely the two greatest gifts God has given us are choice and responsibility. And most people want to give them back, you know, live with the illusion of no choice and, and to blame, uh, you know, so it's not their fault, not their responsibility. Uh, hence they, they stay stuck so anyway i begged him to train me in that coaching stuff he said no i can't train you and what they got to train you and so i immediately signed up for a two-year diploma in life coaching and you know wholehearted about it. i knew that this was something i had to pursue and and you know these these pivotal moments i can remember sitting in hyde park in sydney half an hour before the first three-day intake of that coach training. I'm about to enter a world that everyone, a lot of people told me it's dangerous. You know, it's these, you've got to learn about how to depend upon yourself and not depend upon God. You know, this is not a Christian worldview. This is a secular worldview. And I'd, I'd just been given Anthony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within. Mm-hmm. And I'm holding it in my hand, sitting in Hyde Park, talking to God about this book. I don't know how I feel about this book. I don't know how I feel about this door I'm about to walk through. I don't know whether it's safe or not. I don't know what's going to be on the other side of this. I'd watch so many of my friends and family and other people walk away from the church and and no longer have faith. And I thought that's I, that will never be me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and here I am. And I I just felt like in that moment. Uh, a verse popped out in the Bible to me and it says, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Every good gift comes from God. And so wisdom is wisdom wherever it's, wherever it's found. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Anthony Robbins, whether he acknowledges where his source of wisdom is or not, he's provided a gift to the world and it benefits people, you know, whether a doctor who invents a medicine or a vaccine order says that God gave them that or not, who cares? It, it blesses the earth. It, it produces health and prosperity. And so it's a gift. And that was enough for me to go, okay, well, I, I'm going to be wholehearted about this too. I will not hold back. I, I will be all in. And I'm not entirely sure I'm emotional about this, but I think, I think in reflecting, it was just such a, a moment in time that had so much destiny resting on it. Because <sighs> if I had a balk there, I may still be there. I may still be the pastor. And I, I was a good pastor. 
but I'm an excellent coach. Mm-hmm. I was, this is what I was born to do. And, and the real irony of it is that um, almost immediately coaching completely deconstructed my faith. <laughs> almost immediately. And I never saw that coming and I would never have anticipated. And if I knew that was the outcome, I never would have agreed. But it's such a beautiful thing to, to move to bigger, bigger stories, bigger maps of meaning. I loved my Christian experience. It gave me a, a map of the world that helped me be a good man, helped me love my wife, helped me understand what to do with my money, how to help me be generous and kind. But then I didn't need it anymore and it didn't answer the questions I was asking. And I remember a couple of years into the coaching journey, having had some coaching myself where I fully laid every single thing in my life open and deconstructed every every sense-making paradigm I created and, and really decided uh, I'm actually not a Christian. And I came home from that experience and told my wife and, and she said, <laughs> okay, um, all right, so the kids will go to your parents. Uh, we'll sell this house. I'll, I'll move back home uh, to the Highlands for a while. And it was just so matter of fact, like, who – who are you? And we're yeah. clearly done here. I don't know what, I don't know where my husband went, but you're not him. She and hadn't been in, in part of the, the unfolding for you to that. Like you hadn't dripped little pieces of what was, that was happening for you. No. And I think that was her great struggle. I, right. I changed so quickly, which mm. is what I do being wholehearted and pragmatic by nature. The moment something stops working, I jettison it. It just doesn't have any utility anymore. And so I, um, yeah, so I, I had not filled in the gaps and, and then dropped that as a bomb. And it, it was very catastrophic for her, but a, and a remarkable week because I was, I was in such a beautiful space, so much peace and presence. And, and I said to her, okay, um, well, good luck finding someone who can love you like I can. And all the things you've loved about me are better than they've ever been. So I don't think you're going anywhere and I'm certainly not going anywhere. So mm-hmm. we're going to be okay. And just kind of held her in that space for a week until we navigated that. And I got to backfill some of my journey. Um, it was still very unsettling for her. She'd come into my world. Um, she'd come from more of a nominal faith background. And here I was, the fired up, wholehearted pastor, knew where I was going, knew what was right, knew, knew my place in the world. And she found that very attractive and compelling and had got swept up in that energy. And then I said, oh, I'm not that guy anymore. It, I, could, I could understand how alarming it was for her. Did you understand it at the time or can you understand it now? I understood it at the time, but I, I couldn't, I didn't know how else to have that conversation. I could draw it out. Yeah, or I could start with where I was getting to anyway, and work my way back. And I don't, yeah, I, I think yeah, the philosophy of we'll we'll work this out. So just say what I want to say and clean up the mess afterwards, rather than softly, softly, or pretending or avoiding. And um, what's more raw, right? It's more raw, it's more raw and real, yeah. and and it, it it enables. You know, I'm I'm. You know, married a long time myself, and and anything that's swept under the rug is the problem, not the the bad things that are talked about and dealt with, as bad as they are, as hard as they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's that's what we've found. I just I wanted to just quickly say thank you for sharing that, man. That was 
is real. <laughs> and, uh, and I can relate in many ways. And I, and it, I, I want to see how, you know, it leads to the insecurity project, but it, it just, as a side note, I just watched this movie called 14 peaks. It's on Netflix about a, a climber named Nils who climbs the 14 highest mountains in the world. And in six months, which is the previous record was 16 years. And he was, he was trying to, he was a Nepalese climber and, you know, no, nobody cares. That was part of his point was you care about the Western climbers. They get all the credit, but we're the, you know, words in our blood. And so he, he's in the, he's the first Gurkha, which is a, was Nepalese military to get in British special forces. And then he decides he loves climbing and he wants to give up everything to, to make this project a reality. And he doesn't, you know, he has to remortgage his house. I don't want to give away too much. And his brother disowned him uh, instantly, calling him selfish. It's like, who are you? You only have six years left in the military pension. Your mother is sick. She depends on you. We all depend on you. How could you do this? And it, it just reminded me of that when you were talking that on face value, these, these, these big moments don't make any sense. And yet they are the ones that lift us forward if we are willing to take the leap. I don't want to use the word brave to take the leap. Maybe that is it, but maybe this is, you know, where potentially insecurity and, and, and the patterns that we have in our mind block us. And so can I ask in that moment for you, what was, you know, you didn't want to leave the church. Was there, was there a deep rooted something insecure, uh, some, some form of insecurity or just, just a self-sabotaging or just not being willing to think about things a certain way that was the resistance to allowing. It, it sounded like you, you actually made it happen pretty quickly, but was there something that was the block that said, I can't do this. I never said I'd do this. And that, and that kind of opened the door into understanding insecurity or did that come from somewhere else? Oh, no, entirely. It was about insecurity because my whole identity my moral compass, my sense of who I am and what I'm doing was tied up in being that man. And that's, I'd invested everything into be that guy and I knew how to be that guy. Um, I didn't know how to be anyone else. I, I didn't have a map to be anyone else. I didn't have any structure or narrative that said I could be anyone else. And so it was a massive unknown. You know, I think if the 23-year-old would have seen me at 33 making that decision. He would have kicked my ass. <laughs> he just said, you sell out. You said you would never. What have you done? <laughs> so there was a great investment into I, I made vows about this very thing when I was young and here I am. And so, yeah, it was a big, a big discovery about my own insecurity and ego and identity wrapped up in character and role and relationships and history and and early on in the coach journey, it's such an empowered space and such a life-giving, energized group of people because they're trying to trying to do something big. They're trying to add value to others. They're trying to lift the collective consciousness, and they're entrepreneurial. So it was a it was the vibe was great, and it, it freed me to think bigger than I'd thought before pretty quickly. And I I've always been a great reader. Never really thought I could write myself, but dreamed. Imagine making a difference by writing. I look at books, I think what treasures that you could create an idea and that idea is there for anyone at any time to read whenever they need that bit of wisdom. Imagine contributing like that. So 
uh, I, in a moment of clarity and confidence in this coach world, actually stated I was going to write my first book. And they called me up in front of the group at one of the trainings and I had to say the title of the first book and burst into tears again because it was such a pivotal moment. And yes, I'm doing it and I'm living. And, and the book was called 12 Coaching Conversations Every Disciple Must Have. So it was, it was I'm holding these two worlds together. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Christians need coaching. That these, these two worlds belong together. And I'm going to hold them together. Uh, and so then I told my wife I was writing this book and I told my best friend I was writing this book. And then I went home to the hotel I was staying and wrote the first chapter of that first book. And then the moment I shut the laptop at 11 o'clock at night, all that energy and passion and excitement just turned to fear and dread. And you're kidding. What have I done? I've actually <laughs> put this out there, put myself out there, begun a journey that I don't know where it's going to take me. What if I can't? What if it's no good? Uh, I mean, over my head. And that was the moment that I really uncovered an absolute mountain of insecurity that I felt like was going to consume me. I don't think I slept all night. It, it was so intense, terrifying. And but I but I loved the fact that I was in a coaching space because I thought if anyone's going to know anything about whether it's possible to fix this or deal with this, I'm in the right space. So I I thought pretty early on. I reckon this is a solvable problem. And then it became my single-minded process to go i regardless of what i'm going to do in the world i got to solve this for me i got to work out has anyone ever in the world overcome insecurity or is the best you can do mask it or manage it are there people who live unhindered by this who can show up at their best threat matters most and and that began the process of working out what i now know to be true and have eventually written about and created my work around but firstly it was for my own insecurity and mm -hmm. otherwise I, I knew i would just shrink back and hang on to what i'd always hung on to Mm -hmm. Do people, do they not like the word, you know, when you bring, cause it, it's, it's, it's a negative word, but the, the lens you're coming at it from is not, you are insecure in the sense that it's bad. It's your insecurity is the, is sort of the, the lens to see what is wrong and needs to be inside of you or needs to be looked at differently or understood differently or unpacked. You know, how do people how do people handle that word when you when you chose it as the thing to go out, you know, forward with? <laughs> well, yeah, I tell the story in the book around when I told my business coach at the time. All right, uh, I've I've worked seven years as a coach helping people grow and change, and every single time it keeps coming back to their limiting beliefs about themselves. And I reckon underneath all the levels of dysfunction are limiting, are limiting beliefs, doubts, fears, insecurity. So I've developed my skill set around that specific problem, and that's all I want to do. And so I'm going to be called the insecurity project. And he said, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's a that, terrible name. <laughs> that's a terrible name. Clearly, that's the wrong name, Jamin. Yeah. So you can't do that. No, no. Okay. Good, you're excited, passionate, but back to the drawing board because that's not it. Um, and people are insecure about being insecure. So no one is going to put their hand up and say, hey, Jamin, I'm insecure. Could you come help me? That's the thing people are hiding from. They don't want to be exposed. And you're yelling at them with the thing they least want to know. So no, you can't do that. It's not going to work. But he gave me a gift because it caused me to have to reflect. And the, the two questions to me that seem like they have the most power in them to get me unstuck and and I think probably anyone unstuck. Well, what got me unstuck there? And that is, hey, what do you want and what are you prepared to do about it? Mm -hmm. And so driving in the car a couple of days later, you know, 
discouraged, upset, thinking, ah, man, my business coach who I trust, admire, said, I can't do this, this is wrong. Then it's like, hey, Jamin, you know, he's not your mum, so I can't tell you what to do. What, what do you want again? <laughs> All I want is to provide a clear framework to end some unnecessary suffering about a solvable problem like insecurity. Whatever reason, it's the problem that I think about, write about, read about, dream about, talk about every single day. It's a problem I understand most about all the problems in the world. So all I want to do is create clear content around that so people know they can solve. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And what are you going to do about it? Okay, well, I'm going to go all in, all in. No plan B, no backup, all in, flag in the sand, going to be the insecurity guy. I'm going to start the insecurity project. Whether my business coach thinks this is a good idea or not, I think it's a good idea. So let's what go. What was the, the framework of when you, when you just said it was the insecurity project? What was it like book, coaching, radio show? Was there a, was there a framework that you gave it the project moniker as well? <laughs> I just like that name. It, just, just like that. it seemed to create room for things to be added to it. Mm-hmm. It seemed to create a bit of intrigue mm-hmm. around a pretty vulnerable word. Uh, it seemed to create opportunity to make it bigger than just me. Uh, so I don't know. I just liked that word and I still like it. So I'm glad that I chose that then, but it was good fortune rather than anything else that I picked it. It's a powerful word. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you, if you shed some awareness on something, it, even if you haven't dealt with the thing, like what is the real problem that's making me insecure? Just saying I'm insecure is a bit of a relief. Mm. Like I find that for myself, you know, I am a fucking basket case about a lot of stuff. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I was asking you of like, do you ever feel unworthy? And you said, no. And I'm like, wow, shit, I bet you he doesn't, but I definitely do. And how did he get there? But I think that the path begins with saying at some point, yes, I feel unworthy or I am insecure. 90% of the posts on, I post on Instagram are fr- me fronting. Like, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's a kernel of my insecurity inside what I hope to be valuable content in some way, but there's a kernel of my insecurity showing. And as long as I know that I can have a healthier relationship with it. Then if I deny it, pretend it's not there. I mean, have you found that to be the case for a lot of people? Well, interestingly, Brene Brown, if you're listening, please take this with for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> I, I think she's created a bit of a monster with the vulnerability movement that actually makes people more dysfunctional rather than less, almost celebrates dysfunction. So I think we're, we're almost socially rewarded for insecurity, not for solving insecurity, but for being insecure. Hey, everyone, this is my thing. This is what's wrong with me. These are my shortcomings. This is my mental health issue. I'm being vulnerable. So applaud me for being vulnerable. It's like, hang, hang on a minute. The point of acknowledging that is not so that you can stay there, it's so that you can fix it now that you've named it, now solve it please. Otherwise you become twice the problem that you already are because you bunker down into that and then you create labels and then you'll never, you'll never leave. You'll identify with that particular problem. So congratulations for seeing it. Applaud your courage for naming it, but now you're just in the game and the game's just begun. So play the game, like come out the other side. 
solve this now that you can see it. So I, I think um, that's that's what I notice with people. That's it's okay to be vulnerable now. We're all about ending stigma about this and that. But I think the challenge is that people get further stuck in that rather than find more healing. Yeah, I it, and that's maybe going back to to clarify what I mean about pseudo intellectual. Uh, pseudo uh, pseudo thought leaders, coaches, etc., where we have the window of social media to say, "Hey, I've had this problem, therefore I'm an expert in this in this subject matter." Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and 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 again, if that gives you some comfort, that's a that's a beautiful thing. But but then we we're filled with it's it's really sensitive to talk about because you don't want to offend anyone or hurt anybody. And like you said, there's a lot of positive baked into it, but then we just have, we're so far from where our parents were, where they talk about nothing and (laughs) to, we talk about everything. There's no, there's no secrets and, or things that like, you know, we don't need to just, we can share them with our wife or our counselor or our coach, but we don't need to put them on social media to, you know, because the likes make us feel like it was good to to be there. Um, I think that to your point, then when the likes are gone, that healing feels gone. That moment that felt mm-hmm. healing is gone because you're on to the next post. You're on to the next thing that makes you feel insecure. And I shouldn't pretend to be the expert. I'm purely speaking from opinion, <laughs> but I wanted to, can I segue for just a second sure. to, because this is exactly one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. Uh, one of the many, but with this moment in time we're in, in the world today, where we're at, at least on the surface of what we see peak division. I, I know that in my, all my relationships, and I'm talking about, you know, we're talking about the culture wars, talking about perspectives on, you know, COVID, all these different things. And all my relationships or many of them, you know, they, they're, they're all just the same as they were two years ago, but on the surface, things look terrible. It looks like we're all just divided. And as someone who studies and, 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 and coaches with this concept of insecurity, where does the last two years put the adults and even the children, the ones who have had their school, uh, how they've, how they've you know, gone to school, whether it's masks or being separated with desks or standing six feet apart, all measures that, you know, were part of solving a problem with the pandemic, but all of these things, all of the negative news, where do you think this puts us kids, adults? I know that's a very kind of broad, loose question, but I, I'm just, I'm so curious your thoughts on this from the insecurity perspective, not on, you know, the details of what the last two years has been. Um, it's probably important to mention that in answering your question that I have been really diving into enlightenment now. The book by, uh, quickly let me find his name. Where have I lost? Uh, sorry, Stephen, Stephen Pinker, Enlightenment Now. I don't know whether you're familiar with that book, uh, but it's a case for why the world's getting better and better, not worse and worse, which when I picked it up, I'm like, that cannot be true. Very pure diamondus. But he's won me over. He really has. And uh, you know, I think having a reverence for history 
is a really important part of being a good human being, just to understand our place in time, where we are now compared to where we've been even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago. It gives some really important context to our current challenges compared to the challenges previous generations have faced. So I, I'm, I'm not alarmed. I, I think the gift in the COVID season that I see repeated hundreds of times over with people I have conversations with is the lack, sorry, the loss of external certainty is the gift, is that things were sailing along, you know, jobs were predictable, relationships, travel, all the things that people were, had come to accept. And then almost every single thing that was certain is now lo- no longer certain, which is very unsettling, but it gives an opportunity to reflect on what also is uncertain in terms of your own sense of self. If you rely on external certainty for your comfort and it is gone, you, you suffer greatly. Uh, so the opportunity has been to go, there is a better source of certainty than needing things to be the way that you want them to be. And it positions you for great resilience, no matter what happens around you. And so because you've had it taken from you, you're forced to face some fears and insecurity that now bubble to the surface that you might've been able to suppress for another 10 years, all the while they're eroding your sense of humanity and are going to leave you into a, lead you into a place of madness eventually anyway. So it's so good that you've discovered insecurity now earlier than you would have before because of what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. That is your opportunity to work on this. And so I think it's the gift is it's fast tracked um, an important subject like insecurity in the world. And I spoke about this on one of my podcast episodes uh, last week or so, the sense of destiny I feel around equipping key decision makers, key problem solvers and politicians, world leaders, you know, working at that level in terms of solving the insecurity problem. I think that is the exciting opportunity of of this age because we watch what happens when decision makers do so out of, like lead out of their insecurity and it's horrific and it's destructive and it continues division. And so the opportunity for our our leaders to be secure, um, that's, that's the hope of our, of our planet. That's the hope of our civilization. And that's, that's the work that I think about all day, every day. And I'm incredibly optimistic about uh, the opportunity to increase the collective consciousness of the planet by creating an opportunity for solving insecurity at a really widespread level. It's so funny you mentioned that. It's literally, I don't know if they've used the word insecurity, but they've definitely used the word ego. And I've never in my life, you know, I don't, I'm not a you know, politics head where I just, I watch politics all the time. But of course, ever since Obama and Trump, you know, I think we're at least over in the West, we're a little bit more engaged. I don't know about politics and in Australia where you are, but you know, our prime minister, we had a we had a truckers convoy protesting the mandates and mm. and it was, you know, it was turned into they're white supremacists and they're this and they're that. And and anyway, whatever whatever your view on the mandates has nothing to do with the fact that the prime minister didn't just address the issue. And that was what became, you know, in the house they were talking about is you're just acting out of ego. Hmm. And I had, and like, literally, these are politicians saying the only thing stopping or continuing this, this thing is your ego, sir. (laughs) And, and I said, like, well, at least somebody's saying it because the, the, we do look to our leaders, you know, yeah. we do, whether you like 
for your left or right, you like the leader or not, you look to them to be secure in how they present the, the, the solution to the problem, whatever the problem is, whatever the solution is, whether you agree with it or not. And I don't think we had that. And I thought it was a really disappointing moment for the country. I think it's, you know, it's good to, to, you know, that there's, they're having some more discussions, but these, you know, this is where I go back to like, what, how influential are they to our children, to our futures, to the future politicians and, and the future leaders, business leaders to see that maybe it's nothing, you know, I don't know, but to your point, you'd hope that it wasn't that you'd hope that it was a, a shining moment of, I'm not going to bring my wounds into this situation and I'm going to, you know, lead from my lessons of, of life here. And it's not just COVID, right? You know, we're dealing with a lot of culture, cultural changes too, and important conversations that need to be had. And as a parent, you're a parent. I can't remember how old your kids are, but it's Maybe challenging. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> I know I have a five-day-old, but uh, <laughs> other than that, I... Um, you know, I, I don't always know how to guide them today. I guess I'm posing that as a question, <laughs> that statement as a question. Uh, I, I like rules and I, I write about this in, in my new book that's coming out, um, Leverage How to Change the People You Love for, for All the Right Reasons So You Get the Relationships You Deserve. Um and I talk about the 10 relationship rules Catherine and I have established for our marriage. It might not sound like I'm answering your question, but I, I am. If you can give me a moment <laughs> to flesh this out. And so in order to talk about rules in this book, I have to introduce the idea of gamification because the moment I say, oh, we have rules for our marriage, the idea is, oh, well, that's the antithesis of intimacy and that's restrictive and that's going to get in the way. But when I say, well, hang on, you know, what if marriage is a game? You know, if you're playing basketball and there's no rules, how you have how you're going to have a good experience of that game? If you don't know where the court is, if there are no markings, if you've got no idea what happens when you get the ball on the ring, if there's no idea of what a foul is or what the penalty for a foul is, or the number of fouls you can commit, there's no clock. You don't know when this game ends. It's not a very fun game for anyone, and and that game breaks down and you can't keep playing it. It's a fun game because there are very well defined rules and everyone knows them, and you play within the rules. So rules are wonderful. You're sitting down to play Monopoly, only one person knows the rules. It's not going to be a very fun experience for either of you. And so I have played Monopoly that way with my daughter, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to interject. It was no no fun to your point. No, it was no fun. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, so we've kind of thought, how do we, if we're trying to win this game of marriage, if it's, we're going to have a great experience how can we set up rules that that really help us win? And so we've come up with 10 and, and then we've come up with six for our family. And it's like, this is the field we're playing on and here's, here's what it means to win and here's what a foul is and here's the consequences of a foul. So here's what we're not going to step off this court. Um, so similar kind of what I was saying about the rules around my own uh, respect for the stage or, or the microphone or the platform one of the rules that that Catherine and I thought about in terms of family really early on was that we we will not ever make a decision for our family based on the fear of what could go wrong or the fear of the bad world or the fear of 
uh, what we could lose. We, we will make decisions with our heart full of love. We'll make loving decisions, not fearful decisions. And when we don't know what to do and the choice isn't obvious, we'll look to what love would do in this situation rather than what fear would do in this situation. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that rule. However, we found a way to create language around that and own that. Um, that served us and our family really well. And so when I think about my my kids, so I'm pretty sure they're 17 or 15 or 27 and 25 or no, no I, think, I think the first guess was right. Um, <laughs> but there, I, I read this thing on, on Facebook from, from one of my business mentors that I really respect, just calling out the dangers of TikTok, saying it's like heroin. Do not let your kids anywhere near TikTok. And I went, oh, my goodness, both my kids are on TikTok. And so at dinner that night, I'm like, kids, I'm going to read this thing to you. You're not going to like it, Just, to, but I need you to, we need to have a conversation about TikTok. And, you know, their eyes roll straight away, and here we go. So I read this thing, and my daughter goes, yeah, Dad, I knew all of that already, and do you know where I learned all of that? From TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, yes, it is where I do my learning. Yes, there are some challenges, but it is the platform of my generation. It is where we hang out. And if you forbid me, I will do it anyway. And it will create grief. It, it will create, like the moment you say, don't do something, and all you want to do is do that thing. She said, I've created a rule for myself that I'm allowed an hour of day, an hour a day of on that on that platform. Feel like it works for me. If I feel like I spend more, it, it creates anxiety for me. And I don't like it, but I, I learn all kinds of interesting things there, and it works. So I am aware of the dangers, Dad. But you know, I think about my my parents told me the ill. My dad always used to talk about the green slime that was pouring into our house from the TV. You know, we were watching too much TV, and we only had five channels, and we'd only watch it for an hour a week. But the green slime, you know, it was the ills of. It was going to ruin the generation and they was convinced and I'm like, oh my goodness, but I probably watched more than an hour a week of TV and I probably turned out okay. And so I don't like TikTok. I don't understand it, but my kids are going to, that's, that's what's in front of them right now. And uh, I'd, I'd much prefer to equip them to face that rather than fill them with fear about it mm-hmm. and any of the other crazy things in the world today. Um, so long answer to your question, but that's how I think about being a parent coupled with the fact that being a parent is only one of the things that I am supposed to do well with my life. They, I do not own those kids. I have them for a season and they're on their own journey and I get to share that for a short time. I have that somewhere, right? (laughs) The poet you're, you're, you do not own your children. They're the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. Oh, wow. Par- paraphrasing. <laughs> I'll send you it after. K- Khalil, yeah. Khalil, his last name starts with a G, beautiful po- poet, Sufi poet. Mm. And um, yeah. when you say that to people, they get really offended. N- not everybody, but a lot. And it's like, well, wait a second. Did you like it when your parents tried to make you them? Yeah, that's right. Right? You, you know, it's... It is an insecurity problem too because I, I watch people who find that life's harder than they anticipated and the dreams they had for themselves are thwarted and they don't have the confidence to back themselves. And so all that ambition they then channel into their own children. They put their own life on hold and then I am parent 
and now my value in the world is in supporting and resourcing my child. So I'm I'm I have a vested interest in how well they perform because if they do well, then I am good. If they suffer or they do badly, then I am bad. And so their whole self worth and identity gets wrapped up in their role of parent, um, which is mm-hmm. very unkind because it's almost like they use their kids, you know, to be really crude about it um, for their own sense of ego. Um, which means you end up being controlling and manipulative and you can't be objective, you can't really discipline, you can't say no, you need kids you a lot to like you and creates a whole bunch of dysfunction. But ultimately it is, a, it is an insecurity issue. The, the best parents are the parents who don't need to be parents. They understand the gift, they understand the season, they show up wholeheartedly, um, but they don't attach more value to that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I already know I'm gonna have a losing season. You know, She'll, like if you just had it, like I don't mean my daughters are gonna turn out poorly. I just mean if I try too hard, you know, I'm gonna have more L's in the box than W's on a yeah, on like a day to day basis. I had one the other day with um, and you know, it's you brought up TikTok and have you heard of uh, Messenger Kids? So Messenger Kids is Facebook's kids product, right? Right. And oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I have. Yes. Right. And so when I was growing up, we had MSN Messenger and you, you know, you yep. chatted with your buddy, but mostly you just tried to chat with the girl you had a crush on. That was sort of yeah. at least my MO. But this one is so I find, I find out indirectly that my girls are on it because I get a message from them. <laughs> my wife, what is this? And I'm, and she goes, well, it's Messenger Kids and it's, you know, it's protected. It comes, she approves every message, every person. And I was like, okay, okay, that's fine. And then I found out that there's a gamification where they really like prompt, play this game, send your score to your friend, um, get your friend to send your score back and things like that, real addictive. And so I was torn between to exactly the point your daughter made, like I'm going to do what I'm going to do. To try and explain that, like, I don't mind you messaging me or your friend, but I, th- the way this thing is, is literally just to get you used to m- sending a message and receiving a message. And, and I said, mm. but I don't know if she heard that. She's not going to hear that. Like, to her, it's just mm. fun. Right. And anyway, I don't think I handled that right. I, I'm not, uh, I, I was the fearful to your rules for life. I was, <laughs> I was fearful of the green slime. <laughs> <laughs> sure. One of the things that's been really useful in my own parenting journey and my own insecurity journey around how, you know, how I'm going to go as a dad is that I, I went out to the end of the journey and already locked that end point in. And so I know that the end result is that I am a good dad and and I am a blessing to my children and they are grateful that I'm in their world. And so if I know that's where I end, it takes the pressure off assessing my success in any one moment because I know that I'll in the end I'll have more good days and bad days. There'll be more good conversations and bad ones. There'll be yeah. more blessings than, rather than curses. And it, it means I'll mess up, like I'll hurt them, I'll disappoint them, I'll act out of fear, sure, I'll, I'll do some stuff that I regret, but I'll apologise. I'll fix it. I'll talk it through. Uh, and and in the end, I, I'm a good dad mm-hmm. and they will receive love from me and I will em- empower them to go beyond what I've been able to achieve. And, uh, and it's nice to have had that squared away for some time 
rather than be uncertain, needing to perform, needing to prove to myself and the world that I can achieve that. Mm-hmm. Are those rules, are they, they're in the book leverage or they're, they're just mm. between your wife and you and are they? No, I did or? include them. In, I did include them in the leverage book because I, I think it was really important to share our own experience. I mean, all my work, mm-hmm. I have to, I have to embody it. And if I, if I haven't got an example of how I've applied it, I don't really have anything to say. So I have, I have shared those rules in the book. As are any of them? I, you know, I want, I want to tease people to go buy your book, but maybe <laughs> you could uh, share one or two of the, the rules of the 10, just um, one, okay. one even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So here's, here's one, here's one. Um, uh, stand up when you're right and back down when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, a really clear rule. And and we've also decided on fouls and, and penalties, which is I'll, I'll speak to in a moment. But in that rule, if you if you think you're right, so we've all had experiences where someone gets upset and demands an apology and you go, oh, yeah, sorry about that. And you don't mean it because you don't even think you're wrong. You're just like, this person's blowing up about something, they're overreacting, this is too much, and so I'll say sorry to appease them, but I'm not really sorry. So that doesn't happen in our house because of this rule. So if I go off my wife for something, she's not sorry, she'll stand up stronger rather than just go, well, the reason I'm not sorry is because of this. I think you've missed this, so I'm going to, I think I'm right. So then, so it means we engage in conflict sooner and sometimes more aggressively, which I don't think is a problem. I think these people that say they never fight, clearly one of you is dominant, the other's passive. Uh, and, you know, the space between you is polluted by that. And so it escalates conflict, but it just means plead your case. Uh, be clear about why you think you're right. But the moment the data reveals one of you is wrong, then back down quickly and sincerely and clean that mess up. We also have a rule that there are, there are four stages of a good apology, not just one word. So <laughs> if you're going to apologize in our house, you've got to do all four, otherwise you get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and it's fun because it's a gamification. So yeah. it's like when you're in basketball. Sometimes it works to milk a foul. You know, you get an advantage if you cause the other person to, to foul you. Uh, and so... There are times where we've incentivized fouls, and so there was a time where uh, if Catherine fouled me in terms of not apologizing properly, her weekly allowance uh, in the way we'd set up our finances went into my bank account instead of hers. And <laughs> that <laughs> is agreed upon beforehand. Oh my god! And like, then you and then you bought her a cocktail with it after. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that one bought some golf clubs or something. But it was like, okay, we, this is the rule. This is the penalty. And and you said you didn't want to hurt me like this again, and yet you did. And so if there's no consequences, no penalty, well, then yeah, there's no incentive to change this. So, okay, this is the rule. And um, and then she had some simple penalties around uh, when I broke a rule. Uh, it's, it was really important for me when I come home that that cat greets me with love in her eyes, that the woman I love loves me and we're okay. And I see that in her eyes. There's, there's love there. And so she was like, 
all right, the penalty is if you, you do this thing that you said you weren't going to do and this happens, you'll come in and you'll there'll be ice in my eyes mm-hmm. and it will burn a hole in you and you will know very clearly that we are not okay. And so I'm like, I don't want that to happen. That ruins me. Mm-hmm. That's My whole world is in chaos uh, if there is no love between my wife and I. And so simple penalty, enforceable rule, you know, you don't have to escalate to you do that and I'm on divorce, like we're divorced. It's like there's a whole bunch of interesting ways you can create consequences. If you don't have consequences, then it's just bluff. And we've all seen parents that bluff. Yeah, if you don't eat your broccoli, you can't have ice cream. You're like, yeah, watch this. This kid won't eat broccoli and will have ice cream. And they'll, this is, you cannot enforce this consequence. You need that child to like you. They know you're full of shit. You know you're full of shit. And so, sure yeah. enough, it's it's painful to watch. So um, the rules and the penalties just mean, you know, your word's good and, and things are clear. Uh, and it, it means we solve issues quite quickly. Absolutely. You said you get to conflict quicker, which means mm. you unpack the issue quicker. This is, you know, we're mm. talking about, for those that are thinking about well, that rules and 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 I think you've you've done a fantastic job clarifying them. But I, when I hear you say that, I hear communication, and I hear when I say communication, I mean what is really the feeling underlying the behavior that resulted in the rule being broken in the first place. Mm. I'll give you an example from my world that will hit home to yours because I maybe us men just all need our wives to greet us with love in their eyes because I, <laughs> when I used to, I used to travel a lot, 200, 200 plus days a year. I don't anymore, but, and my wife would pick me up from the airport and she would never come in and she would never even say, I missed you. And I was really upset by this for a long time. I'm like, what the hell? Like, you know, you want like the Hollywood where she jumps into your arms. Cause you were just on the yeah, road yeah. for seven days. And, and it, once we finally started talking about it, which took years later, years, you know, I found out just the, the challenges of me being away and going even deeper than that, you know, she was at home with the kids. She'd given up her dream for me to pursue mine. All of these layers start to unfold and unpack because of the communication. And so I think that the rules are a great way to spark communication and get, you know, get underneath. And often, you know, sometimes when we get mad at our, our spouse or we get into a posturing where you use the great point where you're not willing to say, you're saying sorry, but it's, you don't mean you don't mean it. In those moments, there's generally something else going on for the person mm. that has nothing to do with the action at hand. Mm. And you don't get there unless you call it out. And these relationships that fall apart and end up in a fair and they end up in all this place that it doesn't need to go is because we're unwilling to have that, that conflict that unpacks the situation early on. So I commend you on bringing that in. And I, and I want to use that as a segue into something slightly different, but also on topic, because you brought up at the beginning of our conversation about how you shocked your wife a great deal when you drastically changed and that drastic change uh, is a theme in, in your life is the ability to just, you know, shift. And this is the nature of a relationship with 
another person, another human being. I choose to live with you for the rest of my life. Well, then that means we choose the changes each other are going to make, assuming Mm -hmm. that, you know, they still work within the confines of the relationship. But as you, you know, as you've continued to evolve and change in your life and your wife, I assume has as well, where does that come into not the rules necessarily, but just, you know, where you are today and how you to go about the different iterations of, um, of who you are as people, uh, you know, for a couple who, who might be going for that. And, I, and I'm using this as a segue into another thing and I'm doing a, a, just a terrible job of it, but I'll get there. So maybe, maybe go to that point, to that question first, and then, and then we'll go where I want to go with it later. So I like the idea of seasons and, and that's an important framework for all my relationships. I don't cling to people. I enjoy the season that they're in knowing that seasons change. Um, so I think marriage, one of the things that Kat and I have been clear about early on is that we're here because we want to be, not because we have to be. Um, one of our rules is to be the prize uh, and to maintain being the prize for our whole relationship because when two people fall in love, both people are the prize. You know, you want what you can't have. Someone is alluring and attractive and desirable and you'll do whatever you can to win them because you don't have them. They're the object of your affection. You know, the law of scarcity says the more expensive and elusive something is, the more we want it. But then when you've got it, it becomes familiar and you you lose the luster and the, the prize frame. And so we've decided, no, no, we were the prize on day one. Nothing's changed. We're still the prize in year 23. So if you don't want to be the person who shares my journey with me and gets to enjoy me, I'm delightful. I, I know that I am. And there are 10 other people lining up outside who'd love to take your place if you'd like to forfeit it. I don't want you to forfeit it. Um, but if you if you want to forfeit it, I'll be okay. And And we both say that to each other. We say marriage isn't based on a historical decision to say yes to each other. It's based on a daily decision. So do you still want this? Because if you don't, then that's okay. And especially coming from the Christian background, I have a lot of people go, so you don't believe in marriage? And I no, no, I do believe in marriage. And and I think I believe in it more than you do because people create these rules and restrictions. Oh, because I committed to you 20 years ago, that means I've got to be with you for the rest of my life. So I could never say no to you which means I'll tolerate whatever bullshit you dish up to me and however poorly you treat me because we're tied for the rest of our life. That's not marriage to me. Um, so back to your question, there is no guarantee that through every season we will stay together. Um, I think every season we survive and every new evolution kind of means we're more likely to survive the next one yeah. as well Yeah, because it, you, we, we say to each other, imagine starting again with someone now, like, what we have been through, what we've seen in each other, what we've drawn out in each other, how we've served each other and nurtured the dream in each other, like it is sacred. Could you imagine? It's impossible. We've lived more than half our life together, so it would be impossible to replace what we've got. So it's very unlikely that our marriage will fail, but that's not because it couldn't. It's because we're so leaning into the choice we're making on a frequent basis and a daily basis that it's likely we'll keep wanting to choose that because it's so lovely. Mm-hmm. I 
I had, I have a terrible confession when you said that uh, I kept, I kept thinking about NFTs. You are each other's non-fungible tokens when you were, uh, <laughs> when you were talking about, you know, not replace uh, being the, you know, the one and only, but I'm, I'm sorry for that. That was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, I totally hear what you're saying. You know, it's like, again, it's calling out the elephant in the room. 50 fucking percent of marriages fail mm-hmm. because they don't address the elephant in the room. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that my wife and I addressed the elephant in the room for us was plant medicine. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we knew we were stuck and we had heard about ayahuasca and, working with a shaman, uh, psilocybin, uh, some magic mushroom. And we actually got a shamanic counselor to sit with us both with and without, um, previously without, and then with psilocybin as a, as a heart opener. And because it just, it just opens everything. Right. And I'm not condoning, you know, class a illegal drugs here, although there's a lot happening that's that's bringing these into the fold for therapeutic purposes and, and legalization in, in those settings. Not that I think that something that's been around and used for 5,000 years should have ever been, but it th- there's this moment and it reminds me of this story where this couple, they actually bound their hands together. So four hands, and they would not separate them until they said everything they needed to say with each other. Every secret, every lie that, not that you can't have a secret, but a secret that is hurting your relationship in in a negative way. And psilocybin was was sort of our way of doing that in ayahuasca a year later. This was like over three years we did this. It it really opened things up for us. And um, and it it opened the door to healing. And I know that, you know, in your life, you've had... um, you've had, you've been open to these experiences, which was a bit of a journey because when we first talked, you'd never been open mm. to it. That's right. And I'm not, and I'm just curious where, where did that, you know, come into the fold for you and, and where you said, this is, this is something I need to experience. Um, and, and what I, what you wanted to learn from it or get from it when you went down that path, if you don't mind. No, not, not at all. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I did a, a full two-tab LSD uh, trip with a couple of mates. And, yeah, you're right, it hadn't been on my radar. Well, And when it was on my radar, it was like, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't need that. I don't want that. I'm not sure if it's safe. You know, but life has an interesting way of presenting opportunities and softening you to different ideas. And um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd just been introduced. You know, I love listening to Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, and they talk about it a lot. And so it piqued my interest. And a friend had told me to read the Psychedelic Travels Explorer's Guide, which is a really fascinating book and unpacks a lot of the science and a lot of the spirituality and a lot of the structure about what happens and how to, how if you're going to experience that, um, how to create some kind of safety. And so uh, I, I like adventure. I like trying new things as long as I can have a rationale for it mm-hmm. and and the rationale for this was I, I do love being a human being i i've been experiencing more childlike wonder just about 
being a human in the last 12 months and never before in my life. And just, you know, just watching my hand for a little minute and just thinking, how does it do that? How, how does it like, and, and just walking out and looking at this, the sun and the, the moon and the stars at night and just thinking, how, how do we, this all spins around and there's planets and celestial beings out there and a cosmos and how, how in the world do we get to have this experience? And I get to eat this food and enjoy how it feels. I get to put on these running shoes and the feeling of that I get to actually move my body in a way that like, I just, I get lost for hours in the wonder of that. And so I'm always interested about what other experiences could I have as a human being. And this just kept getting safer and safer and more exciting and interesting to me. It felt like it could open some spirituality to me that I'd closed off. So as I mentioned, my spirituality was was boxed into the Christian worldview for the first 30 years of my life. And then I kind of jettisoned all spirituality when I, I can't make sense of any of it. So it became very rational and very scientific. And uh, But then in interesting ways, spirituality came back into my awareness and back into my my experience of life. And so I was ready for a spiritual experience open through that chemical substance. So yeah, it felt like the the two instructions from the psychedelic travels explorers guide set and setting, you know, if you're at peace in yourself and your mindset's good and you're looking to be present to wonder and curiosity, you'll have a lovely experience. If you're coming in with a bunch of unresolved anxiety and fear and you're avoiding stuff, you'll probably find you'll meet dragons in in that experience. <laughs> and the setting, you know, if, if you're at a, at a party in an unknown area, in the rain, in the dark, you've got to travel, you know, a couple of hours to get home, it's probably going to end in tears. There's lots of not much margin for error there. But we were away, um, food in the fridge, no one going to disturb us one person tripping at a time you know so there's there's not a lot that can go wrong in an experience like that so yeah then when i told cat that i was going to do it (laughs) there was a bit of humor around how i might have subtly said i'm going on a trip and she went oh a trip (laughs) somehow got it through by being tricky <laughs> and then only later after i'd already booked in yeah I t- remember i told you i was going on a trip yeah i thought you meant a trip to bloody sydney not <laughs> <laughs> to the uh to the cosmos the cosmos <laughs> through the right. cosmos but uh it was a beautiful experience um i followed the instruction around uh downloading eight hours of classical music and i mask on you know laying down and so i'm listening to this music and three hours in I can't tell whether I'm listening to the music, whether I'm feeling the music or whether I am the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, and then I feel it. it's like, hang on a minute. I am the music and God is the music. And, and I got lost in that sentence, that phrase for an hour, the wonder of that and came out of that experience. So acutely aware of the music that's playing inside me is a music about being a good human being. And that music is playing loudly and strongly in my my body, my my voice, my hands, my eyes are an instrument for that song, that melody, and and to let that flow forward more clearly. Um, and interestingly, before I had the trip, Cat walked past me one day and just said, "If I died tomorrow, would you remarry?" And I went, "Yeah, of course." And it was just kind of this. <laughs> and as I'm walking past, just went, "I think that was a trap," and I think that was the wrong answer. And sure enough, I was right on both counts. She got upset and it led to a bunch of conflict. I'm like, you, 
yeah, I mean, I would. Like, you know I would because life goes on and I wouldn't park my life on the side of the road if you died tomorrow. And, yeah, and it was just a weird conversation. But anyway, in, in the trip, I had this experience where I understood her question and I understood why she asked it. And I came out and I had to find my journal and I wrote this one-page letter to her where it's like, I, I get it, and, and I, want, I want you to know that you are irreplaceable, that you are my queen, and if you were to die, that even if you were to be physically replaced in every other sense, you are irreplaceable. You have done the work. You have watched me grow. You have been there in all the pivotal moments. No one can take that away from you. And, and I knew I had to buy her a new ring to signify that, and so it was almost like a... a a new defining moment in our relationship where um, at, at, at few times, maybe in a lot of times in our relationship, she's felt puffed about trying to keep up with me. And, and perhaps her insecurity at times has been that she will lose me because I'll outgrow her and that her rate of change is slower than my rate of change. And so that's going to mean that we've, we grow apart. And so I think in her weakest moment, she's she's feared losing me or the, that she'll stop being attractive to me. And so this moment coming out of that trip was to go, the race is over. There's no more running or keeping up. You, you've, you've won. You've, we've done it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're the queen. No one can hold a candle to you. You are irreplaceable. And so it was, it was just a beautiful experience, clarity about who I was, clarity about who she was, clarity about who we were together and, uh, yeah, and a glorious experience of spirituality that yeah. I'd, I'd almost been closed to because um, I didn't have a language for I didn't have an experience for. It, it was magnificent. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's something that I found that there is this really interesting clarity to these moments in our life. Assuming you're willing to integrate those moments, take a second to jot them down, take a second to ask the question, whilst you're in the medicine. And Tim Ferriss has sort of a, what would be the word? It's a, if you're going to do it, here's the guide, (laughs) even though you shouldn't do it, it's not legal. Although I think he's done all of his, you know, in certain countries, it's, it's legal and different things like that. But point being is that he, he recommends reading the book Awareness by Anthony DeMello, which is a fantastic book. He recommends um, holotropic breath work. He, he recommends different things, which is similar to the work we did with the counselor prior to going into the medicine. Because mm. if you're not ready for what could come up, to your point, you know, it becomes dragons. It becomes, it could become a very bad experience. And I've never had a bad experience in, in medicine. But uh, another great book is Conscious Medicine by an ethnobotanist. I cannot remember her name. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes, but she, similar to the book you recommended, it's, it's the entire thing. It's the preparation. It's the experience. It's bringing it back into your life when you're done. And, and I think I thought something you brought up was really interesting as it does bring that childlike wonder back into your life. And it, it helps you reconnect with this idea. I have it written in my journal of that. I, that I see every day is like, what did you really see today? Hmm. And in the medicine, you see everything. You really see it. You know, assuming you're you're in the daylight, sometimes you're not, and that's or most of the time you're not. But it helps you see things, or in your case, feel that music. Mm. 
And I've, I've come to the conclusion that no couple on the face of this earth should be allowed to get divorced unless they do a journey together mm. with some medicine and a, a counselor and a shaman and the whole works, you know, and after that, if they've decided that it's not, it's no, it's no bueno, then, you know, fair, fair enough. But Jimena, you've, you've blessed me with so much of your time. I wanted to just kind of round out with, you know, maybe some of you know the routines, you know, routine of your life right now, what you're learning, what you're working on, and then ultimately, you know, where people can find you. So why don't we start with, you know, what's your, what's your routine? What's a day in the life look like these days for you? Because you're a very structured, you know, disciplined guy, in, in at least my experience with you. In, intentional. I don't like the word discipline. Sorry, I think it's a better <laughs> word. I think, well, I just think it's a young man strategy. So I think. Self-discipline is overrated because inbuilt in self-discipline is the fight, but it's a fight against your own being. It's based on the presupposition there's a lazy, fat, recalcitrant party that doesn't want to succeed that you must conquer. I just think that's a big misunderstanding. So I think part of the self-awareness, personal development work is coming to know yourself and understanding your own resistance and seeing that it's fear-based. And when you work through that, then you have presence and permission to be at your best where it matters most. So I love going where the life is. That that to me is a key framework for how I live life. Go, go where the life is. Um, so a day in the life, um, I, I love to see the sunrise. So I, I like to be up just before dawn um, either to, to run, ride, swim. And um, interestingly, I've got to got a sore throat and just got over an ear infection because I've been swimming in Goulburn's water supply, which is strictly forbidden. Sorry, Goulburn <laughs> City Council, if you're listening to this episode. And now um, you know why. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know why. I think there's blue-green algae in there, but it's just so life-giving. I love open water swimming. I often swim in the nude. Again, sorry, Goulburn City Council and Sydney Water, who are getting that water downstream. But I love – if I'm not doing one of those three, I'll, I'll take – on my Labrador for a walk. Um, I, I've always got something that I'm enjoying listening to on Audible. Um, particular uh, audio books are uh, the flavor of the month, and biographies are really working for me at the moment. So I just finished Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights, and I listen to Kevin Hart's book. I'm just I'm just doing Billy um, Connolly at the moment. But I just the the wonder of hearing someone's story, what they've been through, and the embodied wisdom—it's it's breathtaking. So more than being preached at by someone who is telling you their idea, just the joy of hearing their story and yeah. drawing from it what you're ready for. Uh, then I'll—I do like poached eggs. A bit, bit particular about my breakfast ritual. So, sourdough, poached eggs, bit of Vegemite, some avocados, spinach leaves. I make coffee. Um, uh, depending what day it is, I'm often then I've got a particularly enjoyable cafe, and I I just love what happens every time I sit down in a cafe. I put my headphones in, music on, laptop open, notebook, you know, paper notebook, blank page, black pen. I just, you know, it's just like, all right, uh, here I am. I've created this life where I actually get to do the thing I was designed to do for people anywhere around the world. What a joy to be living the life 
that I wanted to live. And I just take a moment to acknowledge that. And then I then I'll do some good work. And I like doing good work in the morning. I'll, I'll come home and have some lunch. I'll, I'll have a nap after lunch almost every day. Interspersed in this, there's coaching sessions that I've, I've made available, different spots. I always coach over the phone. So sometimes I'll be walking the dog while I'll coach or um, in the car driving while I coach. Never coach face-to-face, never coach over Zoom. Uh, after my nap, I often feel creative from like five till six and I'll often do some writing or content creation or improve my funnels in, in my business that I'm working on, uh, shoot some hoops with my son, uh, maybe go for another run, watch a bit of Suits with Catherine, dinner with the family and off the bed. Sounds like the perfect life. <laughs> Holy cow. But you've worked hard to build it. And well, I just wanted to say I share the sourdough and eggs, but I don't have the Vegemite. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> what you're doing wrong, yeah. that's where I'm. That's where I've been wrong in my routine the whole time. <laughs> I I took a twelve month sabbatical maybe seven or eight years ago, and and in that time, the the gift in that I thought was going to be doing nothing for twelve months, but that I only lasted three months of not doing anything, and that was harder than doing everything. And so then I realized, hang on a minute, a rhythm of rest, and so. I, in that, in that time, got to redesign my life the way I'd wanted it to be. I didn't have a financial model for how it was sustainable, but I thought I'm going to start with how I'd like it to be. And so I realized that 24, 25 hours a week work was my ideal number spread over seven days rather than compartmentalizing it into the days. And I'd have high energy and low energy work and play um, intensity and rest in every day. Mm-hmm. And that would be ideal. So that's that changed my life dramatically and I've kind of stuck to that for seven years and that's pretty much how my world worked, 24 hours a week of high intensity um, spread over the whole week. If I work more than that, I'm not more productive. I just get tired and cranky and fluff around and less effective. Um, so, yeah. That's fantastic advice. It truly is. And a reminder to me because I, I, get, I get stuck in the, in the benders for sure. Um, and, and to your point, you know, maybe one bender is okay. Work bender that is, you know, but three or four back, back to back, you know, you're just not doing good work. You're not doing deep work to borrow Carl, Cal, Cal Newport, uh, yeah. reference. Right. And benders, I mean, I, you know, so this next book coming out, that'll be, that'll be my fifth and each book has been a bender and, and I'm not sure how else to do it other than, be unsustainable and all consumed with the project for a season. But in the context of fam and everything else, it's just feels like the time's right for that and it can work, um, but it's not sustainable long-term and go deep, get it done and then pull out and yeah. regroup uh, has been okay for me. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't write a book in that ritual of 24 hours a week just to clarify I, there's yeah. not, not enough intensity. I can't get a run at it. Um, my pattern for writing books has been to become a tormented artist. So I go dark when I write. Yeah. I wrestle with the, with the work. I put on weight. I get dandruff. I eat unhealthy. I'd smoke cigarettes if I could, if I'd let myself. Like I just, <laughs> Alan Ernest Hemingway kind of got the shits all the time and messy office and don't bother me. And yeah. Right, drunk, edit sober. 
<laughs> something like that. That's hey, that's Hemingway too. I think that's that's really. I would love to dedicate an entire podcast with you about writing the creative process. Yeah, that right. that whole painful, dark, disturbing, destructive rabbit hole that is writing a book. You've got five. I've got. You're on your fifth. I'm on my second. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I every time I write a book. You know, so the two times, well, actually, that's not true. I've written books that nothing's ever happened with. But every time I hit, you know, the keyboard, I tell myself it's the last book because I'm so shit scared that I have to convince myself it's the last book I'm going to write until I get through the pain and agony of writing that book and then settle. And then, you know, oh, I have another idea. I'm going to do it. But yeah. Uh, and it is just so funny because I cannot see you as that guy eating, <laughs> eating poorly and like throwing yourself into <laughs> this. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's funny. Catherine said to me the other day, I'm going to take a photo of you in all your different characters because as I've developed the nuance of me being me, there are multiple versions of me. And so she's just referring to the, the sporty versions of me. So, you know, I've got to a tri- triathlon suit that I wear on Tuesdays in the local try, which is different from the cricket gear I wear when I'm playing <laughs> on Saturday, which is different from when I go for a run, which is different from when I go for a ride. When I'm doing farm work, I have a particular kind of clothes that I wear. When I'm writing, I wear different things. And I've found clothes are the most powerful way of knowing who I am. Yeah. And, and I can be anyone I want to be as long as I give myself permission to be that guy. And so I think that's been the real joy in writing has been developing new ways of being and so embodying a writer and rather than just trying to write as me it's like well i i need a new character at my table who knows how to write books because i certainly don't yeah uh so it's got easier over the years when i've understood that that process i do i do write with bourbon and so my brother gave me this hack this is um this is like the the Nicorette long, lozenges to get off of cigarettes. Yeah. I'm not a cigarette smoker, but they're an incredible focus hack. Yeah, right. And so I only take one a week on my writing day, yeah. but oh man, I am on fire and I am not condoning. This is not an advertisement <laughs> for this brand of, of uh, <laughs> you know, it's not the chewing gum, it's the lozenger. But yeah, to your point, you know, I mean, to get the juices flowing, it's not easy. And we will, we're going to do this at some point. We're going to, we're going to, you're going to grow your writer's beard as patchy as it may be, as we discussed earlier. I just, I, I want to ask one quick uh, question before, you know, I I let you go. And and it's how do you relax yourself enough to have a nap in the middle of a busy work day or when creativity is flowing in your mind? Uh, I sniff a cricket ball. Yeah, like literally, like literally. Yeah. What does a cricket ball smell like? <laughs> it's delicious. It smells like smells like being twelve years of age, getting a brand new cricket kit for Christmas, and the nervous energy of being ready to face a fast bowler and being terrified and excited at the same time. And I love sport, and I do enjoy cricket, and the nuance of that game and all that comes with it. It's a very different part of my brain than any other part of my brain. And smell is the most powerful anchor in the state. 
And so I've anchored my sleep state to a cricket ball. And so I have a sleep ritual. I have a mouth guard, an eye mask, a bedside fan, a certain pillow, blackout blinds, um, and, and that cricket ball switches me out of business mode, creative mode, writing mode, and into sleep mode. And, and I just start thinking about bowling, line and length. Uh, there's a few key famous cricketers that are in my mind straight away, and I'm just I'm there with them, and I'm, I'm into cricket. So as strange as that sounds, uh, that's how I, that's how I have a nap. Yeah, it makes total sense. And <laughs> I assume if you sniff the cricket ball, your wife knows she's not getting some gym, gym, gym time. That that's right. <laughs> she's like, oh, you're, you're oh, yeah, sniffing the cricket ball right now. I guess. Uh... <laughs> so, my friend, my friend, thank you so much for all your wisdom and just your energy and presence and vulnerability. And please tell my listeners where they can find you because I think unhindered the one minute coach both, but unhindered specifically is, is a top 10 book. Every human being should read. And I've read a lot. And so I don't, I don't make that claim lightly. Uh, you know, where can they find you and what do they need to, to look forward to next? Well, thanks for those kind words about the book. Uh, I mean, the upside of, going so hard after insecurity is there's not many, if anyone else in the world who's done the same. So it's quite easy to find me when you search overcoming insecurity. So try that first. If you can't remember how to spell my name, try searching the insecurity project that will find me quite quickly. That'll, that'll show up my podcast and my website. You'll be able to take an insecurity test. If you, if you find your way to my site, which highlights where insecurity is costing you in your life or in your business, which is a bit of fun to do, but also a way into the awareness process around, okay, this may be a bit of bigger problem than I thought. Instagram is my preferred form of social media. feels more personable than the others at the moment for me. Uh, podcast is my, my it's the way that I put out the most content. I do 10-minute Tuesday every week and then interview guests and do live coaching demonstrations there so you can find that on Spotify or iTunes or other podcast things. And, and then looking forward to uh, I'm doing a book tour in Australia and, and the US with Leverage coming out uh, in Australia in April and the US in October. So, yeah, that's me. Excellent. And you also have a TEDx talk that people can find on YouTube. And, I, and I, your name will be in the notes, so <laughs> they'll figure out how to say it. Jim, in the world is a better place because you are in it. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, that's a glorious conversation, Joel. Thoroughly enjoyed it, so thank you. My pleasure. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. You know, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything, we'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on, of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.